salvation as the the title of the message. And for me, as someone who's grown up in the church, someone who has um, spent a lot of time studying the deeper doctrinal issues around Christianity, studying not just the Bible itself, but about the Bible, um, history, archaeology, science, and really digging very deep. For me, it's been really refreshing to come back to the basics, to to put together this uh, little study about sin and salvation, about the real basic tenets of the gospel. This is the gospel message. It's the really foundational elements of, um, you know, what what is the gospel message and, and why do we even need saving? What is sin? How are we saved? Um, those types of basic questions are really important ones that we need to hold on to and are the framework, or as the title of these, uh, this uh, teaching series is The Foundations, uh, classes. It's the foundation of the of the rest of it, and we can get so caught up in doctrinal tangents and details that, you know, they may be important but aren't salvation issues. Are things that can really distract from the core thing, the simple thing, the simple matter, the uh, fact of the matter that God loves us and what He did for us. And so we're going to talk about sin and salvation tonight. We're going to talk about questions like what I just mentioned: Why do we need saving? What is sin? How are we saved? You know, we live in a world that's increasingly gray. Um, We're left with a pretty confusing outlook on right and wrong. Uh, looking at the culture around us, the messaging in radio, in, uh, in television, in movies, uh, in politics, is a constant and very confusing message of mixing right and wrong and blurred lines and really kind of anyone's interpretation of what's good for them or for you. And... God's word has something even to say about that. In Isaiah 5:20, I'm going to start off with this scripture. It says, "Woe to those who call evil good and good evil." This is Isaiah 5 verse 20 through 22. "Who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight." Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. You know, it's, this is such a good commentary on our society. Calling evil good, calling good evil. Uh, celebrating things that used to be condemned and considered a downright abomination. Even in culture, let alone in, in Christianity and according to God's word. We've now taken things that used to be considered and well accepted as unacceptable. And have now not just made them acceptable, but celebrated. And you're a bigot and a hater if you don't celebrate it. It's not enough even for you to tolerate it. You've got to celebrate it. That's what our culture says. And according to popular humanistic thinking, uh, essentially what we're supposed to do is whatever's natural, whatever makes us happy. Follow your heart, Disney says, right? And, yeah. and what does God's word say about that? You know, it's no mystery to me. When you look at our culture, we look at the messaging uh, that we have um, such a confusing society, such a confused society, um, how things that are used to be evil are now called good. Uh, we see people making such terrible decisions about their lifestyle choices, uh, homosexuality being one of the most prominent issues of our society. You know, we, I think that it's pretty obvious that we have many youth uh, claiming that title of being gay for the very fact that it's just such a celebrated thing now. You're basically a hero if you come out as gay. And so we see such a, a crazy 
uh, attitude in our society towards right and wrong. Scripture, again, gives us a very contrasting message. And I'm going to touch on Titus chapter 2, 11 through 15. In a world that says, you know, do what's natural, do what makes you feel happy, follow your heart. God's word says in Titus 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, there is a right and a wrong, and there's a good and evil. And it says that, God's word says to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Well, the world tells us, do what's natural, do what feels good. God's word tells us, deny those things. Don't follow those things. Those things will lead to your destruction. So we see some pretty uh, opposing views here. So when we talk about the topic of sin and salvation, we're going to start digging into what these things are. Um, it's going to be very contrary to what the world's message is. You know. So before we dive in officially here, I'd like to uh, just pray once more over this message, over God's word, that he would use this to bring us back to the basic truths of what our salvation is predicated upon and really what we've been saved from and saved to. It's a powerful thing. So why don't we pray over this one more time. Heavenly Father, I do want to ask that you would guide and bless your word as we study it, that you would guide each word that comes out of my mouth, that it be of you. And we thank you. We thank you that your word is the source of truth, that we do have answers to these questions as to what is right and what is wrong. How can we know if we're saved or not? Uh, these important, critical issues and questions can be answered in the truth of your word. And I pray that as we look at those answers, that we would wholeheartedly receive them and all the blessings that go with it. So we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So picking up kind of and um, going off of what I just said, <clears throat> you know, the primary problem I think we run into when people, as the Bible puts it, um, do whatever is right in their own eyes, is that they are entirely self-serving. And you have a whole spectrum of what is considered right and wrong. You end up with the confusion in our society because there's no standard. You get people fighting over this law or that law. We have so many laws. I don't even know how many tens of thousands of laws we have on the books. It's unenforceable and unknowable how many laws we have to stick to. Why? I think a big part of the reason is there's, there, there's a confusion as to what's the standard, what's, what's the right and wrong, and there's a denial of the fact that all law is based in moral law, that all law really stems out of the Ten Commandments, of biblical principles, which is what our country was originally founded upon. And when we stray from the standards, suddenly uh, we're left confused and lost, and we just arbitrarily are trying to enforce and regulate everything and, and fight for rights that really shouldn't exist and we don't have, at the same time, allow things that we have no business doing that are destructive and harmful. So there must be a standard. There must be something that transcends our fickle feelings, our taintable desires, and there is. It's called God's Word. The Bible gives us a clear standard, something we can live by. And I like to relate it to building a house in construction. Uh, and I know, Kevin, you know about this stuff. If you try to build a house without a tape measure without any standard of measure, and it's kind of every man's opinion as to what a foot is or what an inch is, uh, how's that house going to look when it's done? How's it, is it even going to stand, <laughs> is the question. And is that a house you'd want to live in? Uh, I think the answer would be a pretty resounding no. I wouldn't want to walk near that thing. Uh, it, if, if it actually stood at all, 
it'd probably be a death trap um, because you can't build a house without a standard like that. Everything must fit in order for it to be sound and work together well. Our society is no different in the framework with which God has created the universe and the spiritual laws in which we reside is no different. God has set a standard and there are consequences for good and evil. We reap what we sow as God's word says. And so standard being God's word, we're going to dive into it and see if we can't answer these questions. What is sin? What is salvation? How are we saved? These critical issues of the gospel message. Well, reading on a little bit further in Titus, uh, picking up in verse 13, it says, we look to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So number one, we don't look at the world and culture for our answers. We don't look around us at the media and at the people who don't have the truth or don't go by the truth for answers. And we as Christians, we get sometimes lost in that. We get confused by that. Uh, We get caught up in even what the rest of the church is doing, getting caught up in it. And we look to the wrong places for the answers. And here we're told very clearly in Titus 2, verse 13, looking to who? To Jesus looking to him who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. And here's the other thing. There's authority in God's word. I don't, I'm not the authority. When, when we talk about this message, we talk about what's right and wrong. If I talk to someone about what is right and what is wrong, or I hold myself to a standard of right and wrong. I'm not speaking on my authority. I'm not saying this is do this because I say it's right. It isn't about my opinion versus your opinion. It's about one opinion, and it's not an opinion. It's the rule and law of the universe. It's God himself who said this is what's right, and this is what's wrong. And that's why he says here, speak with all authority, because we have the authority of God's word. It's not our words. It's his words. And that should be our standard. That's always should be our go-to. When we are trying to discern anything that we're unsure of, is this right or wrong? Should I do this or shouldn't I do this? Should I participate in this? Should I endorse this? Hold it up to the light of God's word. Does it measure up? Hold it up to that tape measure. That's the authority. And if we stick to that, we will do real well. As soon as we stray off into our interpretation and opinion of what you know, is good for us, well, there's no end to that tangent. There's no end to where that trail leads. And we can see, we just look around us to see how ugly that can get. So what is sin? Well, let's talk about that real directly. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you want to turn there with me, I'll give you a sec. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 17. What is sin? Well, I think we've already talked a little bit about the fact that if we just go by our own opinions of what I think is right and wrong or what anyone thinks is right is wrong, we can get pretty confused. Um, you know, I heard a, an interesting story about, uh, I'm trying to remember what book it was I was reading, just recently, and it was a story about Al Capone, about various real famous criminals throughout American history. And it was talking a bit about their psychology. And, and it said the amazing trend and consistency with these mobsters and these famous criminals, these people who killed uh, many people who did all kinds of horrible and moral things, is that once they're finally caught and incarcerated and questioned as to why they did what they did or whatever else, they all had pretty much the same thing to say about themselves. In their own opinion, they hadn't done anything wrong. In their own opinion, they were benefactors to society and they just couldn't understand why they were being punished for it. They didn't deserve Alcatraz. 
They didn't deserve the punishment that they got and all the misery that the police and law enforcement were putting upon them. They're just trying to make an honest living or do their thing. And in their own eyes, in their own mind, they were right. There was nothing wrong with it. And if you go by the humanist philosophy, the godless philosophy of today's culture, well, you can't really argue with that. I mean, you could say, yeah, it was pretty inconvenient for the other guy who got shot. <laughs> However, you know, if for some reason you feel like it's okay, with it's only natural, you're, you're you know, just trying to survive and, and take care of yourself, look out for number one, you really don't have any limit to where you can argue right and wrong. You're really kind of left groundless and without authority. And so when we talk about, well, what is sin? Let's go to Deuteronomy here in chapter 6, verse 17 18. This is going to really set the foundation for what is sin exactly. And it says, you should diligently keep the commandments of who? The Lord your God. His testimonies, his statutes, which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in whose sight? In the Lord's sight. It says, do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So here I think we see a really good foundational principle is what is sin? Well, quite simply, it's what's right in the Lord's sight. Not what's right in my sight. Well, what feels good to me now. What is right in the Lord's sight? Pure and simple is what is not sin, I guess I should say. What is sin is anything that isn't right in the Lord's sight. Anything that is contrary to what is right in the Lord's sight. That's quite simply the definition of, of sin, of violating God's commandments. Um, is anything that isn't right. Uh, and you contrast that with uh, the various times throughout Scripture where we see people doing what's right in their own eyes and the, contra- and the, and the consequences of that. So we're going to look real quick at three violations of Scripture, three violations uh, in Scripture of the commandments of God, three things that, that Scripture talks about um, that are sort of related to this idea of sin. And uh, so we're going to go to Exodus 34. We're jumping around quite a bit here because this is a bit of a topical study. So we're going to try and bring in uh, the whole truth of God's Word and how it ties together. It's all connected. And, uh, and that's why we know it's God-breathed. It's, it could not be a work of man. Exodus 34, 5-7 says, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. This is speaking of Moses. Moses is up there on the mountain seeking God. And it says that the Lord descended and stood there as Moses is calling upon him. And then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And so we see three different things listed here, and there's various other places in Scripture where we see contrasting ideas of iniquity, transgression, and sin. So I think it's worth noting, well, what are those different things? Are, are they all the same and just different words for the same thing? Or are they referring to different behaviors or different, different things that are in violation of God's commandments? Uh, so we're going to look at that and looking at the root words, the root Hebrew words that are behind those words, and we see them consistently used throughout the Old Testament and in uh, Greek and Aramaic versions in the New Testament. So number one, uh, what is it? It says iniquity, transgression, and sin. So what is iniquity? Iniquity comes from uh, the root word abone. It's a Hebrew word meaning perverse or crooked, and it really seems to indicate being corrupt almost in your own, in your very nature. And who you are. So iniquity kind of refers to uh, being, it literally means bent or crooked or perverse. 
uh, in, in who you are. It's almost like you just don't even know any better because you're me- that messed up. Uh, you're, it cr- you're crooked and perverse in your very nature. And so iniquity refers to a, a sort of a nature the contrary to uh, God's path being that straight path. This is, would be the crooked one. And then transgression. Transgression is a whole different word. It's uh, pisha in Hebrew, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But it means to rebel or revolt. So transgression means to know what the right thing is and purposefully go against it. To purposely rebel against God's will or God's commandments in your life. And then thirdly, sin, which is kind of the encompassing word we're using to talk about violation of God's God's commandments, God law, God's laws, and that uh, that Hebrew word is kata'a, and it literally means offense or to offend, or to be worthy of punishment. But the root word of kata'a is kata, and that means to miss, to bear the blame or to lead astray. And it's commonly thought that that's an actually an archery term, and and many of you know this. But the idea is you're trying to do right. It may be very well intended but you miss the mark. And the idea is the picture of an archer aiming for a target. He's aiming for the target. He's not aiming at the neighbor's house or the power lines. He's aiming at the target, but he misses. He, he's off the mark. He's not good enough. And he falls short and therefore is worthy of punishment. Therefore is, has offended the, the standard. And that's what that word literally means. So we see three different things mentioned in Scripture. Someone who's kind of trying to do the right thing as best they know how, but they're falling short which is what we do as sinners. And then there's transgression, which is willful rebellion or revolt against God's will, and iniquity, which talks about a really a very nature that is corrupt and contrary to God's way of thinking and, and being. So this leads us to ask, well, has everyone sinned? Is everyone, is everyone guilty? And is it even possible to live sinless or to avoid these things? Um, when does it start? At what point in our lives when we're little babies to growing up are we considered a sinner? Are we considered guilty? Um, which is you know, something that's a fair question. And I think some people do ask that. Well, what about the children? What about babies? What about um, the good people we know? Uh, and we've all talked to people who say, hey, I'm a good person. I've talked to many people who say, well, I know a lot of good people. And what kind of God would send good people to hell? And so we're going to talk a little bit about well, what is good first of all, uh, because we have to define that if we're going to we're going to see if that stacks up to God's standard. But let's first of all talk about um, has everyone sinned? Is everyone guilty? Or are we generally good, as some people would hold to? You know, I have a friend who um, I knew from junior high. We uh, kind of grew up together in the same youth group at church. We uh, even went on a mission trip, a couple mission trips, uh, some to Mexico, one to Ireland. We went to various places to share the gospel to serve the Lord. Uh, we even led music and worship together. And uh, he now claims to be an atheist slash agnostic. And I had lunch with him a while back and uh, was just really surprised to hear how he had been so led astray. And uh, this is one of his main hangups, just right here, is he had bought into that lie that everyone is generally good. And as a people, you know, we're making progress and we're getting better all the time. And in general, we're good, you know, and, and, and you know, how, how messed up is that, that God would, uh, you know, punish and judge uh, people and, and use fear as a tactic to, 
to get them to serve him or to or to believe in him or whatever. He was just all worked up about it, and it was really interesting. And and so I, I asked him a, qu- a couple of questions about the idea of people being generally good, and and I said, well, well, then why is there even crime to begin with? If if we are generally seeking to do good and it's our nature to do good, well, then why do people kill each other? Why do people steal or do entirely selfish things that hurt others? Why is it that when there's a major catastrophe like like a flood or an earthquake, people start looting and rioting in the streets and doing all kinds of horrible things as soon as the restraints are cast, cast off? Why do they default to that as opposed to loving and caring for one another purely and protecting each other? Why is that? Uh, well, he couldn't answer me. He had no answer for that. He couldn't tell me why that is. He said, well, I guess you have a point there, that whole sin nature thing. I guess you know there might be something to that. And then we taught, went on to talk about the fact that you know God simply must exist based on just pure evidence and things like that. But this was a real big hang-up for him, and he had bought into something that's commonly uh, spoken of in the world and in our culture. It's part of the gospel that's very offensive, the idea that I'm a sinner, the idea that I even need saving. That's offensive to many people because they consider themselves good or they know people who they think are good. Well, let's look at what God's word has to say. Again, go back to the standard of truth. Let's start in Romans 3. There's a concept in sharing the gospel and in looking at some of these basic tenets called Romans Road. Many Christians who've been around a while have heard of Romans Road. Romans Road kind of leads us down this message of salvation, of you know sin and salvation. What is, what is sin? Are we sinners? How are we saved? And uh, we're going to use some of these verses as a really good foundational way to understand these truths and to hold to this and share it. So Romans 3.10 is one of the first verses that is used to to help people understand this. Romans 3.10-12 through says, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one, just in case you're not sure about that. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. And if we skip over to verse 23 in chapter 3 of Romans, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I think that doesn't leave much room for, for doubt as to whether or not there's some that are pretty good and some, some are good enough and some aren't. It says all have sinned. None are righteous. Well, then, how, how in the world can that be? And, and we're going to talk about the standard in a little bit as far as what goodness is. But first of all, let's talk about how we got that way. How is it that we are sinners? Why do we have this fallen nature? Why do we have this natural tendency to rebel against the things of God, to violate His commandments, to do things that, quite frankly, are bad for us, that hurt us, that hurt each other? Um, so let's, we're going to kind of go back to the beginning a little bit, but we're going to start in Romans 5.12. And it says, Therefore... Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Uh, so we see there kind of the intro to, okay, well, how, how is it that we became sinners? How is it that we are sinners? Um, why, why isn't it possibly perfect? Well, we have to, Romans here is indicating we need to go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 gives us a story, and we're not going to go back and read through it all, but I'm going to summarize it for you. And uh, you may probably heard this. It's sim- quite simply that originally God created us sinless. Originally, well, there was a sinless and perfect world. And then there's something that's called the fall, which is essentially man had free will, 
man and the first man and woman had the had the ability to choose, and for no other reason really than that uh, the the relationship had to be meaningful and that we really had to choose God for it to mean anything, rather than be forced or to only have one option. So God gave man a choice to obey Him or to disobey, to to continue in this perfection, or to to give into the temptation and to follow after the lies of Satan himself, and they fell. They bought into the lie. They disobeyed God. And thus, as it says here in Romans 5, the result was death, pain, separation from God, the sin that now is through Adam spread to each one of us. As uh, the Chronicles of Narnia says, we're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Uh, We all inherit this sinful nature. We're all born a sinner. And right off the bat, we, you know, we, we don't have to be taught to be selfish, do we? We don't have to be taught to lie. We don't have to be taught to, to, uh, to do all these things. It comes quite naturally because we have this sin nature that we inherited from Adam. We are predisposed to it. We're desperately lost in it. And what are the results of sin? Well, we look at the story in Genesis and we look throughout Scripture. We see, first of all, one of the main results is separation from God. God is holy and perfect and righteous, and sin cannot dwell in his presence. And we see one of the first consequences of sin of Adam and Eve was that they were cast out of the garden. They are cast out of a place where they had intimate fellowship with God. They got to walk with him and talk with him, literally, and be close to him. And they lost that, that closeness. So sin results in separation from God by the very fact that God himself is holy and perfect, and sin cannot dwell in his presence. And if you remember, it says there in Genesis, even before they were cast out, even before God confronted them, do you remember what they did when they realized their sin? They hid from the presence of God. They ran from his presence. And so not not only did God have to cast them out, but they themselves couldn't bear being in his presence because sin causes that kind of shame. Uh, So sin causes the separation. And ultimately, number two, sin invokes God's judgment. As we read earlier, sin must be judged. Remember that verse we talked about where we talked about the character of God forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. If God is holy and perfect and just, which he is, that means he cannot overlook sin. He cannot overlook evil. He cannot just kind of brush it aside. Eh, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal because there's only one standard, and that is holiness and perfection. So ultimately... Sin results in separation and ultimately God's judgment. And if you die in that condition, eternal judgment and eternal uh, eternal punishment. Proverbs ten sixteen says, The labor of the righteous leads to life, the wages of the wicked to sin. And if we kind of segue that right into Romans six twenty three, very well known passage, it says the wages of sin is what? Death. Wages of sin is death. So that's what sin results in. Sin results in death. So this is a really important aspect of the gospel. I think one of the things I want to take a moment to discuss and and hit on is the very fact that there's a bit of a culture in the church that would sort of like to get away from this whole sin thing. Kind of like to pretend like it's not a big deal. That God is love. And that's all we want to talk about. And yes, he is love, but he's also holy. And you can't, you can't pick and choose attributes of God and make him only that. And you can't isolate that. He is holy and perfect and just. And he is love. 
And those things are inseparable. But we see that many have been disenchanted. Many have have followed after God or the church um, under false pretenses. Um, uh, there's someone named Ray Comfort, I'm sure is a name some of you have heard and known, uh, who does a lot of preaching. He's an evangelist, and, and he's got some good material out and some controversial material out. Um, but, you know, they had a tape out and a, a series called Hell's Best Kept Secret, uh, and it had some pretty good um, foundational elements that relates to this. And one of the things he talked about is that there are many who, who preach a false, a false gospel. And he illustrated it this way. As if you're on an airplane. Let's say we're all on an airplane. We're taking a trip to Tahiti. It just sounds like a good place to go. And the flight attendant comes up to us, comes up to me or you. The flight attendant comes up to you and says, Hey, I got this parachute for you. Okay? This parachute is going to make your flight way better. You're going to enjoy your flight much more if you have this parachute on. It's going it's to make it smooth. It's going to make it perfect, comfy, all that good stuff. Here, put it on. And you're kind of talking. You're hesitant at first, but she talks you into it. You're like, I'll fry and see. So you kind of get this big old pack on your back, and it makes you hunch forward, and it's uncomfortable. Everybody around you is kind of pointing at you and laughing at you, kind of like, what is this guy doing wearing a parachute? And after about an hour of extremely uncomfortable flight experience, you're going to throw that thing on the floor. Right? However, if on that same flight, instead of the flight attendant telling you that the parachute is going to make your flight all comfortable and and rosy, uh, the captain comes on the loudspeaker and says, "Uh, Attention, everyone, Uh, we've just lost all power in engine two and three, which means this plane is going down. Flight attendant will be walking up and down your aisle, passing out what remains of the parachutes. Please put it on as we will most likely be crashing within the next 10 minutes, or crash landing in the next 10 minutes. Now, when you get that parachute, what's your motivation for putting it on? Would you let anyone talk you out of taking that parachute off? Would you care if anyone thought you were silly for wearing a parachute? Would you care that it was uncomfortable to have on your back while you're in your seat? No. You'd be clinging to that parachute for dear life because you know that that parachute is what's going to save your life. Well, the gospel is the same thing. We have these people going around telling people, oh, become a Christian. It'll make your life joyful and peaceful and blissful and, and, and God will bless you abundantly with all these things. And then they go, okay, I'll try this God thing out. And then suddenly, you know, they find out it's not too popular with some of their friends or they have to give up certain things or maybe life still has problems like God said it would. And so they go, this God thing doesn't work. What, I, what's the point of Christianity? It's fake. And, and off, they, off they go. And they, they fall away. They fall away from the church. They fall away from, from the faith. And the truth is never were saved to begin with because they didn't have a saving understanding. They weren't believing what the gospel is. It's a false gospel. However, if they understand what sin does, the wages of sin is death, that ultimately the wages of sin is eternal judgment. And if we understand that Jesus Christ, salvation in him, is that parachute. It's what's going to save us from the wrath to come. It's how the only way that we're saved from the wrath to come. Well, now the perspective changes. We're not looking to Jesus to make our life perfect and blissful. We're realizing we have a much greater reward. We're looking beyond that. And as we read much earlier, our eyes are on, on the author and finisher of our faith. Our eyes are on him. And now could anything tear that from us? No. No. And so sin, understanding what sin is, what sin does, the ramifications of it, is a critical element to understanding salvation and to understanding the gospel. 
And if we don't share that message, if we, if we, if we try and dance around that, we beat around that bush or sugarcoat it, uh, we're not being true to the gospel. We're not doing anyone any favors. They need to understand how serious sin is in God's eyes and what the consequences of it are. So, just in case it isn't perfectly clear, we're going to just touch briefly real quick on the idea of what about good people? Don't good people go to heaven? Is it possible to be good enough? What's the standard? Well, let's look at Scripture. Matthew 19. We're going to turn there. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 17 says, So he said to him, Why do you call me good? This is Jesus talking. And someone just came up to him and said, Hey, good teacher, ask him a question. I'm not going to get into a lot of the background of it. The point here is that we want to focus on is this idea of what good is. And it's Jesus himself says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And so he was approached by uh, you know, this rich young ruler, as he's called. Someone's saying, hey, what do I have to be, do to be saved? And he says, first of all, no one is good but God. So unless you realize that I am God, and essentially, obviously, shouldn't be calling me good. But he says, keep the commandments. Now, just to stop right there and understand what he's saying. Oh, all you got to do is keep the commandments, as if that's possible. <laughs> the, the point is, we'll never... He, the, either the rich young ruler here he's talking to or any of us reading this now who are meant to learn from this need to understand, okay, well, that's the order. Keep, that's, the, that's what we have to do, keep the commandments. But the reality is, the whole point is, we can't. We fail every time. We fall short every time. Just taking the, the top ten, the ten commandments, and stack ourselves up to, up to it. No, not a person in history can say, aside from Jesus, I've kept them all perfectly. And that is the standard, to keep them perfectly. Leviticus 11, 1 Peter 1, God makes it clear what his standard is. He says, be holy as I am holy. Not as your neighbor is holy, not as what's commonly received in society is good, as I am holy. Be holy. That's the standard. The reality of this truth is that we can never be good enough to earn salvation and please God. The entire Old Testament demonstrates this. The entire Old Testament, we're told in the New Testament, was merely a tutor. It was, the idea of it was, it was to show us how badly we fail. How in our own strength, in our own accomplishments, in our best efforts, we fall short. We just can't do it. We must get help. We need help outside of ourselves. So this most important foundational truth here, the reality is we can never, no human can ever be good enough to earn salvation and please God. Well, that can sound pretty depressing but what i tell you what what's even more astounding and more important is the truth that we can never be bad enough that the price jesus paid for us would be insufficient now let that sink in and realize that we can never be good enough on our own however we can never be bad enough that christ what christ did for us to save us would not be sufficient so that's the good news so what now we're going to transition into salvation itself. Obviously, according to Scripture, we're entirely lost. On our own, because of sin, we are lost. We must be saved. We must be redeemed. And thus, Christ comes on the scene. And as it says in Romans 5, we're going to uh, swing back to Romans here in Romans 5. 
Verse 8, it says, God demonstrates his own love towards us. And then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ was the only perfect and sinless man. He was fully God and fully man. We're not going to get into his deity and some of the other aspects of that theology and doctrine tonight because the focus here is sin and salvation. But just know that Christ was the only one who could redeem us. He was the only one who was perfect. And because he was fully God and fully man, his sacrifice on our behalf was sufficient for all. For you and I, for both past, present, and future. And that is what God's word teaches. As it says in, in the verse we all know, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Come on, say it with me. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 1 John 4, 9 is another one of my favorites. It says, in this is the love of God was manifested towards us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God. So not that we did anything great. Not that we accomplished it. But that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the substitute, the sacrifice for our sins. So how can we be saved? What do we got to do? Romans 10, 9 through 10 tells us what we got to do. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's that simple. We rest in, trust in completely the work of the cross the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and that's how we are saved. And you notice it says, with the heart one believes unto what? Unto righteousness. So in other words, it says belief has evidence. Belief, true belief, sincere belief, makes a change that has effectual in your life. When you truly believe, righteousness is what is the effect. You essentially, positionally and immediately are considered righteous, justified before God. God's word says that we are justified because of Christ. Okay? But then he goes on to sanctify us. He goes on to purify us. He goes on to make that righteousness a reality in our daily lives as he works in us and we find we're not the same person that we used to be. Because through him, we, we, we acquire that righteousness. We acquire, we acquire his character. As Paul said, it's not, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We've been crucified with Christ, as it says in Colossians. But it says we believe and we confess. So in other words, it's not a private thing. It's not something that's just kind of between you and him. It's, it's something that's lived out. It's something that's confessed, meaning we speak it, we live it. People around us know that it's not left to question. It should be obvious. It should be something that, it, that, is, uh, that permeates our lives and how we talk and in who we are. And this obviously leads into the question, kind of one of the final questions we'll talk about is, well, is there any other way to be heaven, to get to heaven, to be saved? Um, There are many who say in our society, well, Jesus is one way to heaven. He's a way, not necessarily the way. What about all these other religions that have faith in God or a God? You know, we have Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and we have Hindus and we have, we have Muslims. We have all these different faiths that, that try to do well or believe in some sort of God. And isn't there multiple ways to heaven? Well, we're going to follow God's word on this. 
And again, does God's word leave it in question? Does God's word say that Jesus is a way or the way? Does God's word kind of just offer a, a one option for salvation or not? Well, what did Jesus himself teach? John fourteen six gives us an answer to that. John fourteen six, Jesus says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So how many people make it to heaven, to the Father, aside from Jesus? Zero, according to this. Exactly zero. There is no other way. So Jesus didn't leave it in question. He didn't say, I am a way. He said, I am the way. John 10, 1 through 10, Jesus tells a parable in, uh, in, um, in basically likening himself to a shepherd. And he says, truly I say to you, He's talking about being the shepherd of the fold of sheep. And he says, Truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth, puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. And this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and go out and find pasture. And so... Jesus makes it clear. He reiterates, I am the way. I am the door. There's only one door. I am the door. You must go through me to be saved. I am the only way. He is the only door. And so knowing this, well then, that leads us to the next important truth and one of the final important truths that we're going to talk about tonight is our security in salvation. The fact that, well, if we couldn't earn it, if it wasn't of us, if it wasn't of our own power, well, do we have to do anything to keep it? Can we lose it? And the good news is no. Even even as much as we receive it, so we walk in it. And I want to uh, first touch on John eight thirty four through 36. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son remains forever. If the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So there is no doubt if, if Jesus Christ makes you free, you are free indeed. He says you're a son, you remain forever. And we're going to end with Romans 8 if you want to join me there. Romans chapter 8 starting in verse 1. Just a moment while I go there too. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that was weak through the flesh, God did. So in other words, as we talked about in the Old Testament, what the law couldn't accomplish, what all the rules and commandments could not accomplish in us, what we could not accomplish in attempting to keep the law is, is this salvation, this being set free, this getting out from under condemnation. 
what it couldn't accomplish, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we know there is no condemnation to us who are in Christ Jesus. When we receive that gift, when we believe in our hearts, confess with our mouth, we are saved. And we are completely confident and secure in it. And the end of Romans 8 is really the capstone to this. It's really uh, just the best way to conclude uh, this, this study on salvation in our security in it. And we're going to begin with verse 31. It says, What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, just in case he didn't mention anything there, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we need never doubt or fear. You know, did I blow it bad enough that I lost my salvation? Is my salvation in jeopardy? Uh, have I fallen out of fellowship with God and therefore I'm not sure if I'm going to heaven? If you have received this gift, if you have taken hold of the price that was paid on your behalf, you are secure in it. Walk in it. Walk in it and rejoice in it. It says earlier that we are more than victorious. We're more than conquerors through him. So walk in that victory. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We don't put on that parachute because it makes our life perfect. We put it on because we know it's our only way to salvation. The byproduct of is not that we're sinless, but that we do sin less. We grow. God works in us. We see him working in and through us to will and to do for his good pleasure, as his word says. But we can be confident in the salvation we have in him, that the sin uh, that we can't be rid of in this life, uh, we are forgiven of. We are forgiven and free. And so... Let's walk in it. Let's hold, tr- hold fast to this truth we know. But yes, we're sinners, but it doesn't stop there. We are saved, and we're not saved of our own merit, our own effort. We're saved because of the one who never fails, the one who's perfect, the one who paid the price on our behalf. And that's where we place our faith, hope, and trust. And with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the truth in your word. Lord, it does expose the fact that we're in desperate need. And I pray for anyone who might listen to this message who hasn't yet received this gift. I pray that you would speak to their hearts, you move mightily in them, that they would receive that gift today, that would make that decision to follow you and to surrender to you and to walk in victory and in the freeness and the newness of life that is in you alone. And so Lord, we thank you.
for all you've done in our lives and through our lives, Lord, for all we have to look forward to. And we commit our lives from this point forward to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.